And I am Aware Now. Aware Now, the official platform for causes. Tune in and turn it up as we raise awareness one story at a time for the causes that tie us all together. Air Force Major Annie, as we'll refer to her, who was born in Afghanistan, came to the United States as a teenager to get an education. She enlisted in the Air Force in 1985 and attained the rank of Master Sergeant. On September 11, 2001, Major Annie was the only airman in the Air Force to understand Pashto, the same language spoken by the insurgent group known as the Taliban. She was immediately deployed as an air crew linguist. After two deployments, she was assigned to the National Security Agency for four years. In recognition for her work in a global war on terror, a bronze statue of her has been erected in the Veterans Park in Okaloosa Island. While retired, she still works to serve and save others. First and foremost, thank you, Annie, for your service to this country. While you retired from the Air Force in 2011, your 26 years of service are still talked about and honored today. In previous interviews, you've stated that those 26 years were the best of your life. Question for you to start all of this is why? Why were those the best 26 years of your life? When I joined the Air Force, I was kind of, I would call it a little bit of a lost soul. I was on my own since uh, basically the second semester of my junior year. And so, and when I came from a large family in Afghanistan, to go from that and then really not have much of a family because all of them were back home. Uh, when I joined the Air Force, it became my family. It's, it's hard to explain that, you know, sometimes, but they truly are my brothers and sisters. I mean, from assignment to assignment, you, because, you know, especially when I was flying in different times, you know your life is in the hand of the person sitting next to you and you trust that they're going to do the right thing. And so the closeness that you feel, uh, what makes it the most amazing was really honestly is the people I serve. Because uh, missions come and go, and there are some good missions and there's some bad missions. But, and to this day, you know, what's amazing is I know people all over the world because of my 26 years of service. I mean, I can go to Norway, there's somebody there, Germany, the Philippines, I mean, literally just Hawaii, I know somebody there because I've served with them along the way. And that's what made us is so special is because of the different, and I serve with people from every environment, you know, poor, uh, white, brown, it doesn't matter, color, religion, atheist, it doesn't matter, I serve with all of them. That is awesome. I can certainly see why it would be the people that have really made those years, um, memorable years that they've been. Uh, so I'd like to go back to the years before your career, your teenage years, coming from a village in Afghanistan that had no running water. You came to the United States as a teenager without knowing English to get an education. What was life like for you growing up as an Afghan American in the 80s? What was that experience in the U.S. or you mean in Afghanistan? Well, in the 80s, I was in the U.S. So, um, so let me backtrack a little bit. So, you know, I remember Afghanistan very well because I was in my teens when I left. So, you know, um, yes, we didn't have any running water. We didn't, 
have electricity. So one of my first chores in the morning was I would get up to go get water for tea and breakfast. And I'll never forget in the wintertime, there was a creek nearby our house. But in the wintertime, you know, it gets so cold that you have to cut through the initial ice, you know, uh, to get to the water to take it home for tea. Um, so, yeah, so in our classroom was on the ground with no blackboard or anything. And we just sat on the ground and went to school six days a week. Uh, the nice thing was is that when it rained, we got to go home because we didn't have a roof over our heads. So, uh, but we went to school six days a week and we learned all different subjects. Um, so I did through sixth grade there. So then when life was like, and when we came to the U.S., you know, it, 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 it was such a different lifestyle. It was, oh, women and men are created equal. Like, what? And I think my, <laughs> my brother had the hardest time with it because... Our uh, stepmother, she made sure that all of us did chores. And he was like, what? Because in Afghanistan, you know, he's he's a little bit older than I am. I'm, I'm, I'm the youngest of the three of us, and he's barely a year older than I am. And so in Afghanistan, he would just sit there and say, go give me some tea. And I would have to go get him some tea, you know, because he was the man of the house. He was the king of the house, or malik as they call it. But So the prince of the house. And so, but when we got to the U.S., you know, my stepmother's like, no, you're doing chores like everybody else. And he had such a hard time with that, you know. <laughs> and for us, it was really weird. I mean, I remember, you know, being in the same classroom as boys. That was like such a, you know, and boys and girls playing together. I mean, just some basic things that, you know, Americans take for granted. It is such a culture shock. I mean, to to be in the same room with boys that are not related to you or not cover yourself up from them or talk to them those kind of things yeah yeah wow yeah i can't even imagine what a huge shock it is be. it is it is but you know our stepmother did a really good job of emerging at the center of the culture um and so it, we you know and my dad you know a lot of people are like english is a second language really doesn't sound like it and a lot of that was credit to my father because he, he made us you know we would go to english classes we would People be out there enjoying their summers and we're in the library learning, you know, so because he's like, this is so important. You need to make sure you get English right. And so um, and, and so it paid off in the end that we were able to you know, learn English fairly quickly. But it is it is hard because when you don't speak the language, the one story I do remember when I speak the language was uh, in Afghanistan, when you say, yeah, yeah, you know, in Pashto, it almost sounds like it, it's also it means no, no. Right. So this kid had asked me if he could have my ice cream. And really, was I was saying, yeah, yeah, meaning no. He took it as yes, so he took my ice cream, right? <laughs> and I started crying, right? And the teacher didn't know what to do with me. So she calls, she takes me to the office, calls my dad. And he's like, why is, why is she crying? And I'm like, falling. So he took my ice cream, dad. You know? <laughs> and then he was like, it's okay. You know, when I get home, I'll get you another ice cream. You know? So... Yeah, just little things like that you remember that you, know, you take for granted. So, yeah. But as a kid, those things are important to you. you know? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely they are. Um, you know, so, okay. So so you come and you, as a teenager to the States, um, moving forward a bit more into 1985. That's when you enlisted in the Air Force. My question here is, what was it that drew you to the military <laughs> and then of all the branches to choose from why was it the air force that you were interested in good question 
So I'm going to backtrack just a tad bit. So my dad brought us to the U.S. I was here just for a couple of years, and then I went back and lived in Saudi Arabia briefly. And by then, the Soviets had invaded, and my mother, bless her soul, she was in the refugee camps in Shower, Pakistan. And so I went to a boarding school for a short time in Pakistan. And the reason I wanted to bring that up is because that I had the freedom when I was in the U.S., but then when I went back as a woman, even though I was still in my teenager years, in Saudi Arabia, I had to wear the abaya and and you know, in, in Pakistan, I mean, it was, <laughs> I'll give you one story out of Pakistan. Um, it was right before I left, but I wanted to go see a movie really badly. I love Pashtun music and movies and all that. And my brother was visiting from the US and he's like, okay, you dress like a man and I'll take you. And I got so excited. I bought all my cousin's clothes and I dress up like a man and I have like four or five cousins with me. They take me to the movies and we're there within like five minutes and people, the men realized I was a woman and oh my God, the security that, that happened there, you know, cause they like to pinch and grab and do different things. And yeah, it was pretty scary. So my brother brought me back home and then he was upset with me because he put all that, you know, I put all of us in danger basically. So, um, but yeah, me dressing up like a man didn't work out well. But going back to, to your question, um, well, on that note, too, I want to just say one more thing. Mm-hmm. I think that is one of the reasons why my heart is so broken for the Afghan women right now. Because, you know, imagine being a 25-year-old Afghan or a 20-year-old Afghan woman, right? Since she'd been born, you've been told, hey, go get educated, go get educated, go do this, go do this, right? So you've had all these, the, well, the freedoms within the compound of Afghanistan. But now since August, you know, all your freedoms are gone. And for me, I felt like I was a prisoner of my own body when I was going back through it like that because, you know, when I was in Afghanistan the first time, I didn't know any better. So I was just like everybody else. But then when you taste the taste of freedom, you come to America, you taste it, and then you lose it again. It is just, I mean, it, like I said, I felt like a prisoner of my own body. It was that bad. Um, but going back to your question, so why the military? <laughs> I moved around a lot, obviously, from country to country. And... Uh, so my grades out of high school were not very good, needless to say. Um, and so I wanted, I knew I wanted to pursue an education. I know how important it was because my dad had received his PhD. And that's how we got out of Afghanistan because he came to the U.S. on a USAID scholarship. So I knew how important education was, but I didn't have the grades and I really didn't have the means. So, And then I saw a commercial for the military because I, I didn't know anybody in the military. I was not affiliated with the military in any way. And I saw a commercial for the military and like, oh, we'll pay for your college. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so why the Air Force? This is a little, uh, <laughs> you can mind, I'm 18 years old, barely, barely 18. No, actually, no judgment, no judgment. <laughs> no judgment, I was actually 17, right? And so I go to the recruiting office, right? And they have all these pictures of people in uniform. And the Air Force was the only one that had some a female in uniform. And I was like, wow, I like that uniform. That was the only reason it was the uniform. There was no other, you know, nothing else. It just, there was a female in uniform. And I'm like, wow. And maybe at that time I thought, you know, there were other females in other services. I don't know. I didn't know anything about the service. But yeah, that, that's why the Air Force. And in hindsight, it was the best decision. I'm like, oh, I, don't get me wrong. I love my brothers and sisters in other services. But having experience of the Air Force, I would not join other services because I love my service so much. Yes. 
you know, though that, and then that is a great point that you make the fact that you saw a woman in a uniform and it happened. So you made that association, which is why representation is so important. If you don't, Absolutely. See your, if you don't see yourself as something, then, you know, you think it doesn't exist or it can't exist. So exactly. Just exactly. that one example speaks volumes. Um, it does. It does. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it's, and I'll never forget it to this day. I still see that, you know, I, I'm very much a visual learner, so I tend to have those pictures in my head still. And to this right. day, I still remember that picture there, yes. Wow. Um, you know, now getting a bit more intense with things, um, you've had a very intense life. Um, you know, we look at fast forwarding to September 11, 2011. Yeah. And as an airman, you were the only one in the Air Force to understand Pashto, which was the language spoken by the Taliban. Your life changed instantly that day, as did the lives of many people. Um, yes. Tell us about your work as an aircrew linguist, the role you were immediately given on that day. How? Share how your life changed in that day because of what you knew and were able to do. Okay. So first, I do want to clear this up. Pashto is a beautiful language, and Pashtuns themselves are the most friendliest, kindest people you will meet. The Taliban happen to speak Pashto, so I just want to clarify that because yes. not everybody that speaks Pashto are Taliban. It's really the the Taliban happen to speak Pashto. Mm -hmm. So I do want to clear that up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'll share this quick with you. So right after September 11th, my sister, when we were invading Afghanistan, my sister calls me up and she's like, what does this mean for you? And um, so I had spent 15 years as enlisted in the United States Air Force. Uh, and I made it all the way to, they call it senior NCO and E7 basically. And the highest you can go is in E9 as, as a, in the Air Force or any military as enlisted. And so at that time I had just crossed over and became a brand new lieutenant. So I got my commission in April of 2001 and then 9-11 happens a few months later. So yeah, I was a brand new lieutenant, I'm learning, you know, and I was a, basically, we call it personnel, but it was HR. I did HR kind of responsibilities. I was, you know, they used to joke with us and so we were paper pushers. So, and I had never even deployed at that point, not because I didn't want to, but we had a period of long period of peacetime. So there was really no opportunities in my career field to deploy. Although I'd been overseas, but it was more for assignments and things, but it was not actual deployment deployment. So my sister asks me after we go into Afghanistan, she goes, what does this mean for you? And I'm like, nothing, I'm a personnel officer. I don't know what they could want with me, you know? And then uh, a little bit of time goes by and I get a phone call from the Pentagon and they're like, hey, LT, you know, it shows you in your record that you were born in Afghanistan. Is that true? I'm like, well, yeah. And it also shows in your record that you're, you know, you speak, you know, you're ethnic Pashtun, you speak the language. And I said, well, yeah, it's my mother's tongue and bless her soul. So anyway, so he was like, okay, I need to find somebody to give you a telephone interview to check your efficiency, right? So I said, okay. So he found somebody from, uh, the DOD didn't have anybody, but it was from a foreign service or somewhere. And I did like a telephone interview in Pashto because I could, you know, get my uh, assessment of, you know, how well I spoke question. Anyways, I get off the phone with him. I get a call back. Like usually those grades take like weeks to get, but I get off the phone with the interviewer and I get a call back from the Pentagon that afternoon. And they're like, 
okay, we we need you to go to this building and we need you to fill out. At the time, I only had like secret level clearance. And they're like, well, you got to go fill this paperwork out because we need you to get higher level clearance uh, to do your job. I'm like, okay. So I go over there and literally they gave me the higher level clearances within like 72 hours. I mean, it was, it's unheard of, right? Mm-hmm. And then I had one more problem. I just come back from surgery on my foot and I was in a, in a walker's boot, right? So the, I went to the flight doctor and he's like, well, you cannot deploy with a walker's boot. We got to get your boot back on. I'm like, okay. So for a couple of days, I would go in their office and they would just ice my foot, ice my foot, uh, just to bring the swelling down. And then as soon as I could put the foot in the thing, he was like, okay, I'm going to forget the flight doc. He's like, okay, LT, show me you can run, right? And I couldn't run at the time. So I hobbled, right? And he's like, you know what? If that plane was burning, you hobble faster. <laughs> he signed it off. And I, there I went. Um, so, and, um, so I, and the funny thing was, they were like, okay, go to this base. They will give you everything you need. You'll have dictionaries. And I'm like, okay. So I get to the base and literally, you know, I had to get my flight suits and, you know, everything I needed for the flight crew. Right. But, and then within a couple of days, we're on the way to Afghanistan. So fast forward, you know, I was probably my first mission was in, I can't remember the exact day, but it was like the 20th of October or something like that. So all that happened in very short span of time. Um, as far as what I got to do, you know, intelligence is very complex, complex, and I, it's hard to explain it, but what I want to make sure people know is that my job was really to say, okay, here are the insurgents and these are the, the Pashtuns that are just there. Mm-hmm. And when you're fighting urban warfare, it is extremely, extremely critical to find people that understand the language because just one, the way somebody says something in your window or something, it could mean something completely different as a native, you know, versus. So for me, I, you know, not only was I able to uh, do our missions in, from the U.S. perspective, but I felt like I saved a lot of Afghan lives because I could say, okay, this person is not an insurgent and here's why. Mm-hmm. And that was crucial because prior to that, they're like, oh, if you speak Pashto, let's bomb them. I'm like, no, the whole country speaks Pashto. You can't not just bomb the country, you know? But no, but I mean, that's, you know, when you have no linguist, what do you do? You just kind of bring in the nearby linguists, the Arabs and, you know, the Farsis and Dari didn't exist at the time. But yeah, so um, I got to do some amazing things and unfortunately I can't get into details about it uh, because of the classifications and stuff. But the things I got to do, uh, oh my God, it, you know, just nothing compares. I mean, it's it's no wards, no statues, no uh, the, the lives that you get to save, and you know, on both sides, not just American lives. Mm-hmm. Um, the search and rescues, the search and recoveries were really hard. My first search and recovery, it was a friendly friendly fire incident, and uh, all we could find of the the individuals we lost that day were like one was like three pounds the other was six pounds in a box yeah and it was a friendly fire um we had i'll share one in-flight emergency with you because it's kind of funny in retrospect but we have this battery in the front now mind you i'm on a rc-135 it's like a huge boeing 747 or something like that it's a huge aircraft right and i don't know on any given day there's probably between 25 or 35 people on the plane working so 
all of a sudden this battery in the front of the aircraft is smoking, smoking. So we all go on oxygen and they're like, okay, we're gonna do with this battery because here it was, the, it, the acid would eat internally in the aircraft. So we had, we were over Afghanistan. So we asked to abort the mission and first they didn't want to let us abort the mission, but then they realized, oh, you know, and, and the aircraft is worth in the billions, you know, with all the equipment on it. So they get permission to abort the, you know, the mission. And then the flight, the aircraft commander comes on and says, okay, hold on. You know, so we're on oxygen and everything. And now mind you, we're like at 35,000 feet and we have to get to 10,000 feet right away. And in Afghanistan on the border, there's a lot of mountains. If you ever see the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And uh, we had, this is where you were asking early, how do you, you know, what made you feel like it was so great? So we had one senior NCO he was a, uh, uh, they call it in-flight maintainer or maintenance guy. He goes, gets his battery. He goes to the side and the back of the aircraft, hooks himself up to a harness. And if it looks like this battery is going to explode, his job is to open the back end and throw it out. But that had never been done operationally, right? So he's hooked up to the, yeah, so he's hooked up to the, you know, the whole time he's hooked up to the harness as we're flying back. And the pilot's trying to bring the aircraft down to 30,000, you know, from 30 to 10,000 feet. And then uh, everybody else is like, okay, go through the checklist. And I'm looking at the checklist. I have no idea what the checklist says, you know. And I'll never forget the linguist next to me. I won't say which language. She just kind of reached out my hand and it was a she. And she said, LT, it's going to be okay. Just try to keep your mind on the checklist. Like, okay. So anyway, so it, it was a long flight home. It would take, because we, we flew out of, uh, the air world on the other side of the Persian Gulf. So it took us about three hours, two and a half hours to get home. And it was, it was, you know, brutal because we just thought this thing was going to blow up any minute. And it didn't. But when we land, you know, everybody's there. The fire department's there. Everybody's there. And this plane is really high. So you have to come down on a rope. Like, you know, you, you slide down on a rope like firemen do whatever, you know, or they do it on a pole. But anyways, and so I'm trying to get down, but keep in mind my foot, I'd mentioned to you before, and you know, I went from a walker's cast, right? So I get stuck on the rope, right? And somebody on the bottom is like, LT, jump, I'll catch you. I'm like, okay. So I jumped, and I can't remember who caught me, but they did. And uh, anyways, so our commander is sitting in the background, you know, watching all this happen, right? And on the way back, he, he puts his arm around me. He's like, okay, we got to get you some, they call it egress training, you know, emergency training before you get back on the plane. I'm like, thank you, though. <laughs> so at that point, I didn't even have, I didn't even know how to get out, you know, an emergency off the aircraft, you know, with all the exits and everything. Right. Um, yeah. So, and then afterwards, um, I'll never forget, you know, the running joke was, can you imagine some poor Pakistani family sitting at the dinner table? And here comes the battery, right? Through the roof on their kitchen table and such property of U.S. government, you know, because that was, <laughs> that's what would have happened, you know, if you were throwing it out at that point, that's what would have happened. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, it, in the moment, it was like, you know, people ask me, were you scared? And honestly, the only thing I thought about was my girls, because my girls were very young at the time. They were in elementary school. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I did think about them at the time, and that was the hardest part. But aside from that, you know, I wasn't scared because mm -hmm. at one point they considered ditching the entire aircraft into the Persian Gulf. But thank God we didn't. And here we are. So yeah, wow, it's amazing. Wow, yeah. that is yeah. Um, I just cannot. I, I would just love to just be like in your mind to like see all of these incredible stories. And wow, you've just 
I feel like you've lived well, lifetimes. You know, I, I lately I feel like that, and I probably look like that because I look really tired lately because <laughs> I haven't slept much, you know. But um, yeah, it's. Uh, but you know, the opportunities. I think that's one thing uh, I absolutely love. You know, I learned a long time ago was that. If somebody says, hey, do you want to go do this? You always go try it. Mm-hmm. And I, I had that attitude and I think it worked out for me. And and don't get me wrong, I didn't I didn't have the training. I didn't have any of those things, but I had so many people around me. And, and I, the minute, oh, I forgot about that. He actually, um, when, they, when the in-flight emergency started happening, the aircraft commander came on the comms and said, okay, who's got the LT? Because he realized I didn't have any training. So he cared that much, even though there's like, you know, 30 some of us on the plane. So when you know that, you know, the person sitting next to you, behind you, beside you, in front of you, has your back, it's easy to do your job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, again, you know, just referencing the fact that, so before the U.S., Afghanistan, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, you've traveled to all parts of the world, you've served the United States Air Force, and been recognized with a bronze statue, no less for your great service and your sacrifice over all of these years in looking Can you back- believe that? <laughs> I know, I was gonna say, can you believe that an Afghan? I mean, this, it's surreal, isn't it? It's amazing. I it is, I, it, it's I, honestly, like I said, sometimes I have to pinch myself and I was like, was that real? Is that really me? You know, mm. it's, yeah. It is real. And I don't know, if, and I don't know if those same opportunities are available in other countries. You know, we have our faults in the U.S., lots of faults, don't get me wrong. But I don't know if an Afghan woman, you know, coming to other countries would get the same opportunities that I feel like I, I've had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that leads right into, you know, what, what I wanted to ask was that, you know, in looking back at where you've been and looking at all the things that you've done, despite the challenges that we do have in the United States that we face every day here, um, you have been quoted as saying, this is still the greatest nation in the world. And so considering everything that's happening right now, what is it that personally gives you hope? Not only for the United States, but for this world. Right now, when you wake up in the morning, we see the headlines, we see and hear behind the scenes, some of us as well. What is it that gives you hope right now, Major Annie? What gives me hope? Or, well, in the U.S. are the American people. You know, our government has a lot, you know, I wrote an article about all the issues in our government, um, but it is it is the American people, you know, it is my neighbors next door, it's my, you know, it's my family, it's, uh, and it's not just in the U.S. It's, I think, you know, what a lot of times as human beings, we forget we have more in common than we have in differences. You know, first and foremost, we're humans. We, you know, every day we get up, we need to have food on our table. We, you know, we have those, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I used to love that chart and I used to teach about it, you know. Um, the At the bottom, you know, you need food, shelter, security, those. And so what gives me hope is that I think for the most part, most humans try to do the right thing. But then I do know that every society, every sector has, you know, it's great population, good population, and then you have some bad apples. And what's disheartening is it feels like it's the bad apples that are just destroying or 
are doing what is going on today, you know, uh, without naming names. So what gives me hope every day is, uh, honestly, I look at my past and I'm like, okay, look where you came from. And so when I get stuck on something, I mean, you know, when I joined the Air Force, um, like all the regulation in the military are written at the ninth grade level of reading, right? Mm -hmm. And they give you a reading exam. And when I first uh, took it, I failed it, you know. Um, and part of it could have been because English is my second language, but my supervisors helped me and I went back and studied and studied and passed it. But to go from that to get a bachelor's degree and then get a master's degree, and I was the first in my family to do that as a woman, you know, that's what gives me hope. And I know if I could do it, I know what the struggles I've had and where I've come from. I think, you know, I shouldn't say I think everybody can do it, but I think there's hope for everybody because not everybody has the same opportunities I have, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I think there is hope. And that's what I think we need to focus on is more what, more what we have in common than our differences. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Major Anna, yes, you've retired but still you serve there's still work to be done and while many people think well what are you what are you talking about there's something still going on in afghanistan i, I don't see it on the news i haven't heard anything i thought we were taking we, we've taken care of that we've moved past that not the case can you share a little bit about the work that you're still trying to do that a number of people are still trying to do because it still needs to be done Absolutely. So it's not just me. There's probably thousands of veterans and other organizations that are helping out. So prior to August 15th, before the government fell, I have now, mind you, I still have a lot of uh, relatives there, some siblings that are still there in Afghanistan, and they're successful. They're doctors, they're engineers, they're various different. Um, but as soon as the government fell, the economy just collapsed because the banks are closed. Nobody can access their the best way I could describe it is, imagine, you know, we get a lot of wildfires in the U.S. So imagine, uh, you know, a fire comes in or maybe a quick storm, whichever, and you have to evacuate your home, right? You have no time to pack. You have no time to do anything. And you just take what you can, you know, basically the clothes on your back and your kids and everything. And then you just go. The problem is you have nowhere to go. So you have to rely on all these nonprofit organizations to, you know, find a safe house for you, to feed you, to do those kind of things. And and the sad thing is, is that these individuals, you know, fought with us as Americans side by side. They've lost their limbs. They lost their husbands. They've lost their sons, you know, that were killed uh, because, you know, they were defending us as Americans. And not only that, but, you know, the Af Af Afghan population as a whole, it was a poor country prior to August 15th. But since August 15th, even the UN has said that up to 5 million Afghans have severe food shortages or could possibly starve within the next year or two. And so, the yes, I'm retired, but I'm not retired. Since August 15th, I've barely slept. I have, I have, you know, I've been able to get relatives evacuated, but now, unfortunately, they're stuck in, they've been stuck at a humanitarian city since September and another group has been stuck in uh, Doha since October mm -hmm. and uh, you know some of them are minor kids and their family are here you know as re permanent residents in the U.S. and that's just my family alone you multiply that by and and part of the problem was is that you know this is where I say you know we have our faults 
the withdrawal, as everybody knows, did not happen very well. But what I appeal to the U.S. government is I think we could still do course correction. The first few days when all those flights were coming out of Kabul, it was survival of the fittest. Whoever could get to the planes, got to the planes and got on. They had no documentation and they came in as refugees. Well, the problem is we probably are still left behind between 700, I mean, I'm sorry, 70 to 100,000 Afghans that fought with us side by side. And we looked at them in the eye and we said, you know what, when you're done, we're going to get you a visa to come to America. And that is why so many veterans are fighting so hard because they're the ones that look these people in the eye, these Afghans in the eye, say, you know what, thank you for fighting with us side by side. When we're done, we're going to bring you to America. And unfortunately, now everything just seems to be closed. I mean, the nonprofits did a great job getting people out. We had, I think, maybe one flight or two flights since December out of Kabul in terms of evacuations. And the solution can't be they all need to come to America, but we have to figure out a way to go back and, you know, course correct. And I actually wrote an article giving several suggestions. I don't know if anybody read it. <laughs> so, you know, this is, it's not, it's not a political issue. It's not a military issue because if they put the military in charge, it would be solved within weeks. It is, it's, it's a human crisis we've created there. And it breaks my heart to see Ukraine, what they're going through. But then it breaks my heart even more so to see that Afghanistan is not even on the map anymore. And then when you talk to Americans, they think like, well, what's the problem? We left. That is the problem. We left. Oh. It's true. I mean, mm-hmm. I can give you stories. I've had, you know, my own cousin was killed in a car bomb that was planted for him. Another one was buried alive. And my best friend on active duty was killed here in the, I mean, you know, in the U.S. military. And so I've seen losses on both sides. And it just, to see us do this, and the scariest of all this, it's not just that it's inhumane, but because we've left a vacuum again, like we did after the Soviets left, we will be attacked. Mark my words. I don't know when and I don't know where, but we will be attacked again because the way we left. And that's what sometimes I think is the disheartening part about American foreign policy or the politicians and all that, because I just feel like they just look in the moment, you know, what can get me reelected or what can I do to do this or that instead of looking at, okay, what does this mean five years from now? What does this mean 10 years from now? And it just seems like we keep making the same mistakes over and over. And I hope, I hope, I hope to God I'm wrong, but I don't know. I feel it because the way we left and mm-hmm. some of the individuals that we trained, you know, mm-hmm. they're fighting, they're, they're joining the Taliban because right. at the end of the day, if your family is starving, who are you going to turn to? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, you're going to turn to whoever's going to feed you for that day. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's the reality. And, and I just wish, you know, I'm there. I think if Americans knew the true stories, like you said, you don't see it on TV anymore. I know Americans, you know, they would, they're just like they opened their doors for Ukraine, they would do the same thing for Afghans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But because it's no longer in the media, it's no longer, and especially now with Ukraine, mm-hmm. you know, what do you mean Afghanistan? I mean, now we're done. We won that war, did we? No, mm-hmm. we didn't. Well, yeah, and it's hard too when you, when you hear stories um, about the reality of things and to know the horrible things that are happening right now in the Ukraine that have happened there. And, and also to know that 
not only has the situation not gone away and not changed in Afghanistan, except that it has changed there. It's gotten worse because mm-hmm. so the the spotlight is shifted now. And exactly. so it's becoming even more difficult and even harder. So, um, you know, it's it's one of those things where we say, what is what is the power of a story? What is the power of a, of a voice? And sometimes our our greatest asset we will ever own is is right here at the value of our voice. And so I thank you so much for sharing your voice today because there are some people who just aren't being heard right now. Yeah, well, I hope it makes a difference. Even if it changes one person's life, it's worth it. And I, again, thank you so much for having me. Take care of yourself. Thank you so much. Tune into our podcast, subscribe to our magazine, find us and join us online. Visit IamAwareNow.com. We will no longer wait for permission to change the world. Together, we are aware now.